Hello, and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. I'm going to be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. Each episode, we tackle the ins and outs of gravel and adventure cycling in the interests of providing you information, fostering community, and generally sharing the stoke. In the Dirt is sponsored by listener contributions from listeners just like you. You can visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride to join our membership program, to choose one-time perks, or generally just send us a cup of coffee. And if you have a second right now, ratings and reviews are critically important to our success. So when you're done with the podcast this week, in your favorite podcast app, just leave us a rating or a review. If you're interested in connecting with us and other gravel cyclists in between shows, we've created the Ridership Forum just for that purpose. You can visit www.theridership.com to get your invite. With all that said, let's jump right into this week's episode. Randall, how are you this week? I, I'm doing okay. It's, it's a challenging week uh, amidst lockdown and uh, uh, colder weather, though fortunately here in the Bay, it, it hasn't been too rainy, so able to get outside. How about yourself? You're down in LA. I feel like every answer this year has to have an asterisk by it, and I'm, I would be suspect if anybody said, I'm doing awesome. This is great. <laughs> I had the best week. I feel like there's been very few weeks in 2020 where I could say I've had the best week. I've had a pretty rough one, as a matter of fact. You know, still dealing with some serious family issues down here in Los Angeles, and you know, still super frustrated that I have not been able to get out and meet people down here. It's such a, a mess down in Los Angeles as it is that while I've had overtures to have people guide me on rides, I've just had to politely decline just to be part of the solution and not the problem. Yeah, I think it's definitely been a year of like immense challenges for for everybody and uh, not really having the sorts of outlets that that we may have had in the past in order to uh, you know to work through particularly social outlets being able to go out and connect with people and have shared experiences in the way that's that can be really uplifting that's that's uh, super hard I, I I feel I feel your pain and I suspect a lot of people in the audience are feeling similarly. Yeah, I feel like the podcast has allowed me to develop this community and this voice and this conversation with the community that was this great jumping off point. And I felt like when I was coming down to Los Angeles, it'd be really easy to meet people. And again, it has. I just haven't been able to meet anybody face to face and kind of consummate those relationships over a nice bike ride. My uh, my original plan for the year was to be traveling around uh, the country, living in the back of my converted Prius, which I do promise to get a some pictures and or a video up soon. The the build out is almost done, so a few people have asked for that in the forum. Um, but traveling around the country and uh, just attending events and like embedding in in communities and, and connecting and like that that went out the window pretty quickly back in February March. Totally, I do feel like you know with the ridership forum we're building the groundwork for those type of adventures to be easier and easier for others to have, including ourselves. Yeah. Just, you know, we've got all those regions set up and people are talking and posting rides. I mean, I'm optimistic about at some point in the future, we'll be able to hit the road and get out there and experience some new gravel. Hopefully they'll, they'll, I mean, as, as more people get vaccinated, it will be possible to have, say, like meet up with somebody who also has some verification of vaccination uh, in order to go out for a ride. And hopefully there'll be some sort of passport for that or other uh, mechanism for signaling that. And, you know, I have some 
uh, family and friends in epidemiology and in the medical field, and they suggest that that could be you know viable as soon as you know early summer or so on. It's not going to be herd immunity, so it won't be you know nobody's going to concerts or Burning Man, um, but maybe you know smaller gatherings where everybody has proof will be uh, something to look forward to a little bit sooner than that herd immunity uh, scenario. Yeah, I certainly hope so. In our last discussion, I talked a lot about some of my favorite podcasts over the years and some of the things that that I wanted to highlight. But one of the things I felt like was totally missing was just the state of the bicycle business in 2020. I think it affected a lot of listeners. I got a lot of communications from people who were looking to buy bikes and couldn't find bikes in their size or couldn't find anything available. And that was driving what bike they ended up getting on. So, you know, given your brand thesis and everything you went through this year and your experience in the bike biz, I just thought it would be useful to just talk about the state of the bike biz in 2020 and what trends we're seeing and what are we going to look forward to in 2021? Sure. Let's do it. Anecdotally speaking, and certainly from the kids bike perspective and a lot of gravel bikes, there was a bike boom, but there was the supply drought. Can you just sort of break down from your perspective, what was going on in 2020 and what was creating these long lead times? Why weren't bikes available? So I'll kind of frame this in, in the context of, uh, you know, our personal experience um, that I think is, you know, broadly uh, applicable to a lot of players, though, you know, bigger players would have had a different experience because they would have had, uh, you know, uh, different different constraints. But um, when the pandemic first hit, there was a huge crash in demand. So back in March, like all kind of discretionary buying um, went away uh, in a big way. And so like, you know, with us, that was reflected in a bunch of order cancellations. And so, you know, I, and I was talking with friends at other brands and they were seeing, you know, having similar, similar concerns and other just small businesses generally. Uh, and then April came around and all of a sudden, like everyone realizes this is, they're going to be in for the long haul and, you know, there's no gym, there's no yoga studio, there's no all the other things that you would usually do. And you're not commuting to the office every day. So you have this extra time, a bicycle all, all of a sudden becomes really appealing. So then there was this huge spike. Um, April, May, June were, you know, I, I believe record sales across the board. We certainly uh, saw a big boom internally um, that we were on the one hand excited about. And then on the other hand, you know, the flip side has been, well, the same thing that created that that boom, uh, you know, the, the pandemic also made it so that, uh, you know, there was a huge slowdown in, in supply that's, and that lag, you know, continues to this day. And, uh, you know, I can tell you a little bit about, you know, our, uh, the, the experience across the industry in the past few months, which has been intense. Yeah. I think, you know, people often don't think about physical products and how they don't just get manufactured overnight. And maybe as a manufacturer, you're believing in a trend and you might take a, a bigger inventory position at a certain point. But that bigger inventory position might have been ordering 15% more or something of that magnitude. It wasn't like you ordered 50% more at, to lean into this boom. And I think that's where everybody got caught with their pants down. So on the one hand, like there's the ordering, but at, at the end of the day, like the ability to produce is still what it is. And that was significantly hampered by, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, China was where this thing uh, kicked off. And so they were getting their situation under control. They did a, a much better job than we did. Uh, and in fact, their 
uh, expecting uh, overall growth this year, uh, GDP growth this year, and uh, probably up at, you know, they're predicting about 8% next year. Um, Taiwan also saw a significant decline in capacity as they got their situation under control. Uh, now, you know, they've managed it very well. And so um, I don't, I haven't seen figures on relative production capacity. I suspect it's down a little bit. Uh, but overall, they, they have not had the huge uh, flare-ups that we've had that have res, you know, resulted in, in pretty massive declines uh, sustained over time. Other things happening. So we had uh, had this boom. We had a lack of supply. Um, there was kind of a trigger point over the summer, uh, early fall of this year, where um, you know vendors started reaching out saying, hey, our lead times that are usually 30 to 60 days um, it's now 200, right? And that happened. There was one vendor, uh, in our case, the first we heard from was a vendor called Velo, um, who uh, run by a lovely woman, um, uh, and they s- supply uh, most of the saddles and bar tape, particularly to the mid to high end range for the industry. And they sent an email out saying 200 plus days. And then all of a sudden you started getting emails from a bunch of different vendors uh, saying similar things. And this, you know, caused what what I would describe as something of a bank run in the sense that everybody was concerned they weren't going to get the parts that they needed. So all of a sudden, everybody is ordering. And the terms of ordering at the time were such that you could cancel an order if you don't need it. And so that led people to just kind of order with abandon. Uh, And so then lead times went to 300 days, 400 days, right? There are some vendors where if you order right now, they're expecting to deliver in, say, you know, 2022. Yeah. You know, I imagine like as a, as a smaller brand, smaller brands are ordering maybe 10 Groupos or 20 Groupos, mm-hmm. but the bigger manufacturers are probably ordering 400 Groupos. So it's easy to see the, the manufacturers themselves, the vendors of these products, they're going to go with the, the 400 person with a large bank account, the 400 unit order versus, you know, 40, 10 unit orders. Yep, and there's also uh, bigger brands tend to have, uh, you know, more more robust forecasting. You know, they're getting their orders from they're locking in their orders from their dealers in advance, right? So the dealers are kind of locked into a certain buy, and then the forecast for production um, is handed off to the vendors, and they're you know generally giving those forecasts you know six months, nine months, twelve months out. Um, now vendors are asking for that kind of across the board, which is a new. Uh, a new dynamic, this kind of uh, just-in-time model, which is what you know, smaller brands like us tend to do, um, is not no longer viable in this space where you know you're 400 days out. So it's a bit, very different dynamic. I think it's going to continue to put a lot of stress on that side of the market, and it's probably something the listener should take as a takeaway. You know, in terms of you may fall in love with that frame set, but getting the components to build it up is going to be a challenge. So make sure you're out ahead of that as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in our case, we'll we'll run out of group sets in probably the next month or so. Uh, we have another batch coming in April, uh, but you know we're you know brands like us will have to shift to you know doing uh, doing frame sales or, or frame mod- frame set module sales and otherwise kind of uh, adapting to this changing environment. Yeah, it's super frustrating. I think both for for you, I can only imagine, and for the consumer as well because. You know, we were entering at the end of 2019, this world of plenty of opportunities, plenty of possibilities in terms of picking up a new bike, 
quickly and whatever you wanted and, and customizing it. And now we're back to kind of, you know, ages ago where it's like, we've only got a certain number of models available on the floor. Yeah. There's another thing that I, I think might, might be interesting to listeners, which is to just really um, explain how complex these supply chains are, right? You think about a bicycle, it's like, oh, there's a, a factory that makes a bicycle. Well, every one of those components may have a different vendor. And if you can't get um, center lock rotor uh, lock rings for your complete bike, you don't have a complete bike that you can sell. And your lock rings might be a different vendor than the rotor, might be a different vendor than your you know, levers, your cassette, uh, and so on. And all of those vendors have sub-vendors as well. So maybe you have a vendor that makes a cassette and they source the, um, you know, the aluminum spider from an external vendor who can do it more cheaply and they focus on the rings and the assembly. So you have all, all this complexity in the supply chain and all of this was you know, working in normal times, but these are not normal times. And so any sort of kink in those chains has this cascading effect because now not only can you not get the part, but you're waiting for the part to come in and then that might result in you missing, say, your slotting for like a, a, a paint run or something like this. So yeah. it really is like... If you're waiting on a bicycle, um, and granted, I have some self-interest here, but uh, have some compassion for the folks on the other side. Uh, and at the same time, uh, also, like, we are responsible for, you know, showing, uh, for following up on the promises made. So uh, I deeply appreciate those who've been patient with us, and I suspect other companies do as well. Well, I think it, it goes down to the local bike shop level as well. You start, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I hear stories of people, to your point, like, just trying to get a simple rotor, which you could probably go out to any store and get in, in past times. And now, you know, it's just not there. And the shop's like, I've got an order in from six weeks ago that still hasn't arrived. I have no idea when that part's coming in. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this affects um, uh, the dynamics with local shops. There had been a trend towards, you know, well, there'd been a decline in the total number of shops for quite some time. And shops have on average, not been making money on the sale of new bicycles for quite some time. Now, during the boom, there was less discounting. So, you know, they, they probably did all right, uh, maybe last year if they had inventory. But now if you can't get inventory, you have all this square footage, you have all this team that is there uh, to sell bikes and so on. So I think that that could very well accelerate the trend towards uh, fewer shops that are less bike focused, sales focused, and much more focused on, on service and parts and accessories and uh, things like that. Yeah, I'll be that interesting. Continue. It'll be interesting. I haven't checked in with my my local shop up in Mill Valley, but previously, you know, it was like a six week wait to get some repair work done. Yeah, yeah, I'm hearing similar things. Three weeks, five weeks. It, it'll be interesting. And I also wonder if, like, you know, simple economics is going to suggest that a lot of these trends are going to lead to rising prices. Uh, I I think it it already is. Uh, certainly discounting will go away, right? And discounting is something that happens quite a bit in our industry and, you know, with model years and end of year sales and so on. Uh, but you're already seeing increased prices from certain vendors and of course, supply and demand, uh, it makes sense. And it's, it's a balancing mechanism in a, in a market economy. Uh, I s suspect that hopefully it'll, it'll result um, the backlog in, in labor will result in more opportunities for mechanics and also higher wages for what is a relatively high-skilled, low-paid role. Yeah. So that, that could be one upside, granted not for those having to pay for it, but certainly for the people doing the work. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things I, I actually heard you talk about on another podcast, The Pathless Pedaled, was just the idea of producing stuff in the US when international relations and international transit and all these things become stressed. You know, does it create an opportunity to build more here in the, here in the US? Uh, it certainly creates the opportunity. Um, the challenge is, you know, we, we talked earlier about the the depth and complexity of supply chains, and building up those supply chains requ- requires a a clear and sustained uh, uh, industrialization policy, which is what you know China engaged in, what Taiwan uh, engaged in to big up build up their industries, and so it's not as simple as just we're going to start making this part here, right? So let's say you're going to make a, um, uh, I mean, making a frame is relatively easy, um, which is why you see a lot of particularly metal frame fabrication happening here. Um, it's not necessarily uh, economically, like uh, competitive price-wise relative to doing it at scale in Asia, but it, but you see it done here in a boutique fashion. But let's say you wanted to make, um, I don't know, a, uh, a derailleur, right? Well, are you going to make every part of that derailleur in-house? That's a lot of different manufacturing steps. Usually what will happen is for a smaller company trying to get off the ground, they will source a significant number of the components from other subcontractors and then bring them in and they do the design and the assembly and and the marketing and so on. Um, But if you don't have the depth of that supply chain, it's really hard to get that off the ground. And then of course, well, that's just a derailleur. To make a complete bike, you need you know, depth of supply chain across the entire component spectrum. And uh, otherwise, you still have to do assembly where the most of the components are made. So you could, you know, the U.S. could be economically, like financially advantaged in some subset of components. They can do it cheaper here for some reason. But because the whole collection of components is um, not done here, and assembly is still done there for you know for that reason. Uh, it's it's hard to shift that, so it yeah. really requires policy. That's quite a conundrum. Yeah, I can see that. Like if you if you for some reason were able to make a chain in the U.S., but you had to ship it back to Taiwan to be part of the original assembly, whatever delta in performance or cost that you could achieve in the U.S. is is surely negated by shipping it back to Taiwan to be part of the assembly process. Yeah, yeah. So you know, there are opportunities to get this process started. Uh, it's actually I'm I'm been advising on a on a project that's looking at the viability of this. So you kind of start with frame fabrication and sourcing what you can domestically, but then bringing everything else in containers directly from Taiwan, consolidating there, and then doing assembly here. And that would be like one way to kind of. Uh, jumpstart this process. And then over time, you slowly add uh, production capacity for other types of components and you build up that base. But you know, this is me a 10 year plan for this. And our political system doesn't really allow for um, much planning at all, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And bike, the bike business certainly isn't on the top of the list of uh, any government functionaries desires to bring back onshore very specifically. Yeah. You know, that's interesting stuff, and we'll have to keep watching that. One of the other things I wanted to talk about was just trends in gravel bike design in 2020. I think there's a couple of things that that probably stand out as trends, and I'd be interested to get your take on them. Well, what are you you seeing? Let's uh, put you in the... I, I often talk about wider tire capacity as being something I desire. And I've had conversations with you in the past, and we should definitely do it on air now, about the trade-off, right? Because it's easy for me to sit back and say, 
oh, I'd love to run a, a two, two on occasion or a two, four, if I went bike packing on my bike and it's, it's somewhat frustrating that I can't do that on my current bike. I probably don't need it on a daily basis, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that trend. I'm interested in that flexibility of being able to run a bigger tire. What are the trade-offs there? Uh, honestly, with the exception of say, like to accommodate a bigger tire in the rear, you need, um, you know, you need a wider Q factor crank. So, uh, which is not a huge deal. Uh, and you know, on smaller sizes, the bigger radius of the tire means that either toe overlap becomes an issue or you have to kind of slack out the front end, which makes the steering, uh, you know, not quite as, as snappy as on the larger bikes. But truth is, like you can build a bike that can accommodate a, a two two or even up to a two four, like you see on the open wide, uh, which does have a, a slightly more slacked out front end, um, and the the three T Race Max Ex- Exploro Race Max. I don't know if I get the the order there, something of that sort. Um, they're fitting two fours in there um, with geometries that are you know still still pretty sporty. Uh, so there's really no no downside aesthetically. Some people might not like the double drop stay necessary to accommodate that bigger tire, but otherwise, that it's a trend that makes a ton of sense, and people have figured out how to squeeze in a bigger tire without otherwise compromising the ride experience. So that that'll be a trend that continues. Yeah, I imagine the sort of design philosophy when building these bikes initially, you know, going back four or five years, was more around a cyclocross chassis and or and or a road bike chassis and just making a more off-road capable. So it's pretty natural that, you know, someone was like, Eureka, we can fit a 40, 700 by 40 tire in here. But now I think as the category has grown to be its own beast and riders are defining what they want these bikes to do, I think that's where the larger tires are starting to come into play. Yeah. And I, and I do, I do still feel like having, having ridden, you know, uh, you know, a, a spectrum of different bikes and tire sizes. I still find that 650 by 47 is kind of a certain sweet spot in terms of volume and weight and suppleness and rolling efficiency and so on for like rough mixed terrain riding where you're on the road for a bit and then you're hitting, you know, what are, are some, I'm hitting some significant like downhill single track sections, granted not big routes and stuff like that. Um, but having the, the ability to throw on a two, two, even if it's a little bit heavier and more ponderous and so on, having the ability to do so when you're take, tackling that, that bigger, more rugged adventure, uh, is, is a feature that's kind of a no brainer. Yeah. I do tend to agree with you that that 47 by 650 is a size that it's got some constraints around it, but it's constraining you so that you can have performance on the road and very, very solid off-road performance in the same bike. Yeah, and it and it maintains the handling of the bike too, which is something that a lot of people aren't um, uh, cognizant of. But as you, as the tire, uh, as the the radius increases, the handling becomes slower, and the the measure of that would be the trail figure, uh, which I, I won't get into explaining. But it's it's a measure of how the how responsiveness uh, how responsive the the steering is to to inputs. Essentially, you can think of it that way. Yeah. And speaking of inputs, like think as these bikes and, and, and riders have been pushing the capability of these bikes, we are starting to see a trend towards wider handlebars. Yeah, which I know you got on. And yep. I, are you on the wide handlebar train for good? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the type of riding I do just lends itself for a rig that's set up more off-road oriented versus road oriented. The amount of road riding I do, which is so minimal right now, 
I, I don't mind riding the 48s that I'm on on that type of terrain. If I was doing it all the time, I think I would go narrower again. But for the type of riding I focus on, absolutely. I think that you will, I do agree that we'll see a trend towards wider bars and especially wider bars. Well, I think the style that makes the most sense is a, a bend, which is a bit more complex and thus more expensive to make, but that keeps the hoods in a relatively neutral position, maybe a little bit of flare, but then gets a lot of flare at the drops. And then in that way, you kind of maintain the ergonomics on the hoods, which is where you're doing most of your riding on the road anyways. And then if you're, you know, flared out in the drops for road descending, it's actually not a bad thing. Yeah, no, I think that's the thing. Like all these things take a long design cycle in order to figure out. First, you need the input from the athletes to say, hey, this is, an, this is a challenge or an opportunity. Then the product designer needs to get on it. Then they need to advocate for the investment in it. Then they need to do the tooling. So it's a long process. And what's been cool about Gravel is like, we're starting to see the, the fruition of those labors that most likely started two years ago to try to achieve these products that are making these bikes so much fun to ride today. Yeah, and in you know it speaks to another trend, which is uh, you know the cannibalization of road bike sales by gravel bikes. Like, how many people do do we know that have? you know, just a gravel bike with two wheel sets, or maybe they have a road bike because they had one before, but they don't really ride it anymore. Yeah, that's, it's totally true. I mean, I think, again, if you're certainly if you're on the, the side of the gravel sport of, you know, less aggro terrain, you can have a bike that is a super, supercharged bike on the road, and handles the light off road duty very readily. I just can't see the reason to have purchase a new road bike at this point. Yeah. Especially given that um, they probably, they might not necessarily accommodate a dropper post, which is uh, something I'll never do without on a bike again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So the other, the other trend that you had highlighted for me was just the trend around electronic shifting and where that is going. Yeah, it's going to continue to come down in price, uh, for better or worse. Uh, I, I do think that there, you know, there's a, there's a lot of excitement uh, around electronic shifting. It is, uh, but you know, it's heavier. It's more expensive to buy up front. It is a battery to charge and so on. Uh, the wireless systems have multiple batteries, uh, and it kind of locks you into a certain ecosystem. So I'm not sold on it for myself. I won't be going electronic next year. Um, but there are some things that I've that I suspect will be coming down the pipe that will make electronic shifting more uh, more accessible. Yeah, I sort of vacillate back and forth. I often find myself like heavily desiring electronic shifting. But when I sort of do the math and sort of think about the practicality of it, I'm still pretty darn happy with what, since I'm running a one by drivetrain, you know, having that rear derailleur cable, it's just not that big of an issue for me. Yeah, you know, the, the thing for me, and uh, I'll, I'm just going to soapbox for a moment. Um, you know, I previously worked on a project called Open Bike. We were trying to build an open electronics and software platform for for bike. Uh, and you know, just the fact that you can have multiple devices on the bike, all of them using separate batteries, like that we haven't solved for that yet, seems to me quite silly. And you know, if you had a a single battery that powered a lighting system and a rear derailleur and the shifter and that other things could plug into. It doesn't even need, you know, it can, can communicate wirelessly, right? Let it communicate over an open Bluetooth protocol so that, you know, everything, you know, stuff from different uh, component makers can interoperate, which is something that big component makers are loath to allow. Uh, but, you know, that would make, 
things more compelling for me. But then, you know, that would be an experience that could be quite compelling. You could imagine, say, like, you know, you have a phone mount that's in there too, and that, that can be charged as you're riding. You have a dynamo hub that is going through a rectifier to keep the battery topped off. Um, imagine that for bike packing and, and adventure riding. You know, you yeah. always have power available. Yeah, we talk about the complexity of a single product from a single manufacturer being realized. And then, as you imagined and just have, have spoken to, multiple parties getting involved and creating a standard. You know, there's so many challenges there that, you know, that feels like it's a, a five-year, 10-year-long endeavor to try to get to that point. The, the challenges are actually less technical and much more political. Yeah. Every company wants to create their monopoly. Every company wants to be able to say, like, if you're going to buy my shifters, you're going to buy my derailleurs. And if you're going to buy my derailleurs, I'll only sell it to you if you're going to buy the, the crank set and the cassette. And I'm going to make a special chain that only works with my cogs and all this other stuff to kind of lock you in, um, which, you know, is uh, unfortunately the way that uh, our commerce tends to work generally, not just in the bike industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit frustrating. Yeah. Well, well moving away from equipment itself, you know, were there some trends in how you saw people riding? This past year, I, I certainly recognize one. Well, I don't see a lot of people uh, crit racing <laughs> <laughs> or, or racing generally. Yes, that is true. Uh, elbow to elbow crit racing has not been deemed COVID safe. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's certainly like the bike boom brought out a lot of people who were new to the sport um, and uh those who were new to the sport and um, who've been riding for a long time, I mean, you don't have the, you know, racers didn't have those events, but then the rest of us, I think a trend away from the road and towards more mixed terrain riding, you see that reflected in um, the events that were planned, you know, those big boom and events planned, but then also, you know, uh, sales and just anecdotally, you know, locally, you see a lot of people on, on gravel bikes in groups of two, three, four people, riding socially distant with masks. Uh, so that that trend towards getting away from pure road riding uh, definitely seems to be something. And, and also, without events available, going out and riding for experience, for, for adventure, you know, explore your area. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we talked about it in the last episode, episode 13, about mass events and virtual events. And, you know, some of these trends are definitely going to continue forward. The way I've been thinking about it, you know, I often have a big event, big gravel event on the calendar as something to train for, something to keep me focused. I operate very well in the fear. I'm afraid I'm going to fail and not be able to ride 100 miles off-road. So that gets my butt out the door, gets me on the bike and keeps me training. And I think, you know, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's just this idea that with mapping technology, with communities like the ridership out there, it's easy to source information about different places to go. And mm -hmm. in the United States and Europe, all over the world, there's so many amazing places to ride. And I think one of the trends I'm hopeful is going to remain is the idea of planning a big destination trip. If you think about it, sometimes going to a race can be very limiting because you you show up you want to perform well, there's nervous energy. So it's not like you're going on a 50 mile ride the day before a hundred mile race. But if, yeah. you sh if you travel somewhere, if you go somewhere just to experience the terrain, you're going to ride as long as you can every single day you can mount a bike while you're there. 
And that's the type of trip that really gets me excited to get back to in 2021. I just want to put a destination on the map. I want to bring a small group of friends and just ride our little tails off. You know, the, the, the vision that, that really excites me and that um, I hope that you know, the ridership and other tools can facilitate is one where uh, anybody who wants to go and have an experience, whether it be a, a solo or an experience with, with, with their immediate friends in some new route, can find information about it. But then also, if you want to go to some destination, be like, hey, I want to join. Like, who, who's local? Who knows? You know, who can take me around? What are the group rides that are available in this area? Um, more tools and opportunities for uh, connecting more broadly as a community in this more kind of fluid and spontaneous way uh, is something that really excites me and that I hope, you know, I, I look at how technology has been used in cycling until now, and it's mostly around performance and, uh, you know, kind of broadcasting uh, the riding that you're doing. Like Strava is not really a, re- a great tool for, for community, in my, in my opinion, because uh, it, it's hard to schedule events and coordinate things. And all you can do is like give a thumbs up and a comment. So having more opportunities to really facilitate offline experiences and connections and so on uh, is something that I, I see happening out of necessity within COVID. And I hope that that will continue and that we can you know, help to facilitate some of that. Very well said, Randall. And I think that's a very useful and optimistic view of 2021. And I actually think it's a perfect place to leave the conversation. This is going to be our last call of 2020, the last podcast I'm going to get out the door, fingers crossed. <laughs> so I think we should leave it on that. And I, you know, for the listener out there, I think both Randall and I were very much looking forward to continuing to connect with you in 2021. We definitely want to hear from you in the ridership forum. And when it's safe, man, we definitely want to get together. We want to pull some groups together and do some amazing things together. Yeah. And I will add to that by just saying thank you for being part of this journey with us, uh, both uh, Craig in, in the podcast and uh, and also with, with my endeavors. And uh, it's really been very gratifying to be uh, part of this community. And, uh, and we're excited to, to continue growing it, uh, nurturing it in the new year. Yeah. Cheers. Happy New Year, my man. Happy New Year, Craig. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for joining us on this journey all year long. This is our last episode of the year. We're wishing you a happy new year. We're excited for 2021 and the adventures that we're all going to have, hopefully, together. For the final time this year, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.